You know, back before 104.9 FM was called The River, it was known as WCVO. Remember that back in the day? And um, when my children were smaller, they had a Saturday morning radio program for kids. It was one of those uh, Bible quiz programs, and then, you know, a kid would call in and answer the question, get a coupon to Chuck E. Cheese's or something like that. And I remember one morning in particular, uh, we were listening to the program, and the host said, well, now today, what we want to find out is if there are any children out there in Radioland who could quote John 3.16. So we're listening, and my youngest, who was, I think was six at the time, said, I know John 3.16, so we're just like, quick, go, dial the phone. So he's like, oh no, like this, <laughs> dials, he, he gets on which is the weirdest thing when you're sitting there, you're listening to your son on the radio program, and then he's, he's watching him on the phone. It's kind of a weird thing. But So the host says to him, okay, young man, go ahead and try. Let's see if you can say John 3.16. So he, he gets started, right? So for God so loved the world that he gave his only forgotten son. <laughs> and my wife were like, did our son on the radio just say that Jesus was God's only forgotten son? Oh, no. Thousands of people listening to this, but they had grace on him, and I think he went ahead and, and got the prize for that. But I am so grateful today, aren't you, that Jesus Christ was not God's only forgotten son, but his only begotten son. And if you don't know what that phrase means, then go online and listen to last week's sermon where we explain uh, the meaning of that. Well, I believe everybody needs to know John 3.16, and I believe everybody needs to know what it means the meaning of John 3.16. Let's all say it aloud together, can we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's my hope that if you have not already committed this verse to memory that you will during the course of our time looking at it together. John 3.16. Last weekend, I talked through the nine huge, gigantic concepts contained in this one verse. God loved world, gave son, whoever believes, perish, and life. But you might recall, we barely touched on that second one, love, because as I, I said, it's such a rich concept that I knew we'd need to devote all of today's sermon to that one concept. God so loved the world. And that word, that single word, reveals the heart motivation that prompted God to offer his gift to us, right? Love. Now, love, of course, is something that all of us humans crave. We all need to be loved. That's why so many of our movies and TV shows and Art and books and poetry and especially music speak much of love, or at least our concept of love. And since you can find anything on the internet, I decided to do a search on the web for country music songs about love. And there is no shortage of such songs. I found some real doozies, like, My tears have washed I love you off the blackboard of my heart. And tennis must be your racket because love means nothing to you. I got the hungries for your love and I'm waiting in your welfare line. Or whatever. Um, how about this one? I loved you better before I knew you so well. 
And of course, that timeless classic, I fell in a pile of you and got love all over me. <laughs> we love love, don't we? Love is a many-splendored thing. Love makes the world go round. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. I don't think it's a stretch to say that our world is obsessed with love. As I said, as humans, we all have a deep need to be loved. There's a fair amount of confusion about what love is out there. Wouldn't you agree with that? But thankfully, thankfully, John 3.16 comes to the rescue and in high definition explains for us what true agape love really is. For God so loved the world. That's God's kind of love. That's the love that our hearts long for. So what I want to do today is try, is, is make an attempt to look at seven different perspectives or angles or features of the love of God. And I can guarantee you that I won't do it justice, but let's try because it'll be fun, okay? So here we go. First, God's love is unlimited in its scope, limitless in its scope. It is boundless. When the Bible pictures the love of God, it does so as something that is immense, expansive, huge, gigantic, like, like the ocean, or like the vastness of outer space. For God so loved the world. Man, that's big love, isn't it? That is huge love. That's love that does not discriminate. Now, human love, in contrast to that, is much more narrow, isn't it? It's much more selective. It's reserved for people who are just like me, or people that I like, you know, fellow Buckeye fans, fellow Christians, fellow introverts, whatever. God's love is different. God's heart has room for all kinds of people. God's type of love, agape love, is, is so expansive that the Bible writers really push up against the limits of human language in trying to describe it. Like in Paul's famous prayer recorded in Ephesians chapter 3 where he prays for Christians. He prays that believers might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He said, I'm praying that you'll know a love that's really unknowable. It's so big. Paul describes God's love as, as multi-dimensional, expanding outward in, in all directions. So let's be curious and let's ask this, how broad is the love of God? How broad is it? Ephesians tells us that the breadth of his love is such that it, it reaches to the, the outer limits of the racial ethnic spectrum to bring together two groups of people who actually just hated each other. They despised each other. It's a good thing we've graduated beyond those kinds of problems in our day, right? God's love reached out to both Jew and Gentile to unite them together as one in Christ, abolishing the dividing wall of hostility that was between them. You see, God's love is broader than our love. God loves people that you may hate. Did you know that? God loves Democrats and Republicans, Black people and white people, heterosexual people and homosexual people, radical Muslim terrorists and gun-toting, flag-waving patriots. 
God loves Buckeye fans, and yes, he does even have some room in his heart for a few Michigan fans as well. That's for you, JJ, wherever you are. Now look, don't, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that God approves of all the activity that is done by those groups. I'm not saying that. But his love, and particularly his offer of salvation through his son, reaches way out to folks at both ends of any spectrum you might choose. Economic, political, religious, ideological, racial, God's love is immeasurably broad. Do you believe that today? How about this? How about the length of God's love? Well, in terms of, of duration, the Bible tells us that God chose to set his love on people way back before the foundation of the world, before he created the world, he loved people. And then it tells us that he will demonstrate his kindness towards those folks all the way through eternity. So from eternity past to eternity future, God's love is that long. That's a long time to love people, isn't it? How high is God's love? Well, the New Testament declares that God's love has lifted believers up into heavenly places, seating them in heavenly places in Christ. We could call that stratospheric love, lifting us high. That's serious elevation. How deep is God's love? <laughs> How deep is it? Well, God's love is so deep that he reaches down into the pit, doesn't he, of darkness and despair and sin and shame and guilt. He plucks people out. He places their feet on a solid rock, puts a new song in their hearts that they can sing with joy. That's how deep the love of God is. Praise God for that. We sing a song around here, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That's love. Who loves like that, by the way? Only God. Only God. How vast and limitless and expansive is the love of God. Yes, it is. But now check this out. God's love is deep in another way, too, because number two, it is unfathomable in its complexity. It is. As a pastor, there's something I encounter quite often, and, and it makes me sad. And it's this, Christians who have become disillusioned with God, or even mad at God, angry at God. Sometimes people verbalize it, other times they think, well, that's not the Christian thing to say, so they stuff it. But I can see it in their faces. They're having thoughts like this. If God is a God of love, why is my life turning out like it is? Am I doing something wrong? Am I missing something? Why are, why are things piling up on me or piling up against me? That's how it feels. I see other people who seem happy and things seem to be going well for them, turning out well. But for whatever reason, it's just not working for me. And that doubt can turn into disenchantment with God or despair or even a sulking, brooding kind of anger against the Lord. I don't claim that I understand all of the ways of God, but I am learning this. God's love is so simple that a child can understand it, and it's also very, very, very complex. D.A. Carson, who was here a few weeks ago, wrote a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It's in our bookstore, and it's enlightening. There's, there's a shallow end, and there's a deep end, right? There's the deep waters. 
I think we need to realize that God's love is not an ironclad promise to make our lives pleasant or easy all the time. What is love anyway? What, what, how would you define love? I'm talking about true biblical agape love. Would, you, would we not define it like this? It is the heartfelt commitment to sacrifice self for the highest good of someone else. Isn't that what love is? The heartfelt commitment to give of myself for the highest good of someone else. And what is the highest good? It's what God deems to be the highest good, right? And so our loving Father, our loving Father in heaven, is not averse to, at times, letting hardship enter our lives to accomplish high good in the lives of His people. You say, Pastor Steve, I don't understand. Why is God allowing trouble and adversity into my life? Well, I can't say for sure, but I knew that, do know there, there are times when He does that to test us, to show us His strength and our weakness. Sometimes it's to purify our hearts by showing us our idols, those things that we have put in His place. Sometimes it's to discipline us for our good. Sometimes it's to cause us just to reach up to our heavenly daddy in desperation and say, I need you. Sometimes it's to make us long for heaven. Sometimes it's to glorify Himself because He knows He's going to perform a miracle. Sometimes it's to give God's people an opportunity to minister to us. Pastor Steve, why am I going through this? Well, maybe God's going to bring one of his children your way to minister to you and to bless you. Sometimes it's to prepare us for some future ministry to others. We'll be able to help others go through what we're going through now. Sometimes God allows adversity into our lives just to show demons that he is worthy to be served apart from all of his gifts. For those and a hundred other purposes, God allows adversity into our lives, but always, always, always to conform us to the image of His Son, because that is the highest good. You see, God's love is complex, at least to us, it's not complex to Him. I do believe the more you understand the true nature of the love of God, the more you, you understand it that your, your, your anger and your disillusionment will, will dissipate and dissolve and your heart will soften once again towards God. And I pray that for all of you who struggle with this. But you know, think about it. Really, we should have known. We should have known that God's love does not mean that He will always shield His beloved ones from painful experiences. We should have known that because John 3.16 tells us that God did not shield His own beloved Son from pain and suffering. In fact, He sent Him to the earth for that very reason, that He might suffer and bleed and die. Why? To accomplish our highest good, right? Forgiveness and salvation. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So the love of God is unlimited in its scope and it's unfathomable in its complexity. Third, God's love is unimaginable in its sacrifice. God's love is sacrificial love. Now here's an interesting twist on this idea from Paul's writing in Romans chapter 5. Listen, he wrote this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Now think about that. We already noted that true agape love is the sacrificing of self for the highest good of somebody else, right? But when you think about it, the magnitude of that kind of love rises to a whole nother level when the one being sacrificed for is not lovely or not lovable. I mean, dying for your spouse or laying down your life for your son or your daughter or a friend or a fellow soldier, that's one thing, and it's a noble and honorable thing, but dying for your sworn enemy? That's something else altogether. That's love of another kind, isn't it? And yet when John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, it was not referring to a world full of lovely, lovable people, was it? It was referring to a world full of traitors, full of treacherous, treasonous traitors who sneer at their Creator, who defy His authority, who deny Him the worship that He deserves, who set themselves up in his place as little miniature gods and say to everybody, worship me, worship me, I'm God. And yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. The Bible is clear. It says Christ died for the ungodly. You see that? And some of you hear that and you go, yeah, those ungodly people needed dying for. Those serial killers and Rapists and people who sell drugs to children and Bin Laden and all those guys. Yeah, those ungodly people needed someone to die for their sins. I get that. But you know what? When the Bible uses that term, you know who it applies it to? Everyone. Sure, you might be better than your neighbor or your coworker or, or some terrorist somewhere, but when we compare ourselves with God, we are all ungodly, ungodlike, are we not? Christ died for the ungodly. He died for all of us. And my contention is, is that until you see yourself as that, ungodly, you will not have a full appreciation for the sacrificial love of Christ in laying down his life for you, a member of the class of the ungodly. But when you see it, you go, oh my, <laughs> oh my, that is love. That is love of another kind. God who endured unimaginable suffering to save his enemies. Look, if, if you really want to know, Pastor Steve, how do I know how much God loves me? Don't look first at what happened to you yesterday. Don't look first at the, your circumstances from this past week. Oh, I wonder if God really loves me because of what happened. Don't look first at what happened to you five years ago or 10 or 20 years ago. First, look at the cross. That's where we see the full measure of God's love for you and for me. Now, in our small group this last week, we were discussing John 3.16, and then we turned back to 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16 actually is a commentary on John 3.16. It says this, this is how we know what love is. So here it is. Here's the definition of love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The cross defines God's love, does it not? How do I know, Pastor Steve, that God's love, God loves me? He sent his son to die for you. 
What more could you ask? That's the measure of how much God loves you. God was willing to suffer unimaginable pain to offer his gift to rebels like us. But in his mind, the price was worth it if it meant having us by his side forever. That's love. Again, I ask the question, who loves like that? I mean, seriously, who loves like that? You can look far and wide all across our globe, and you'll come up empty of finding that kind of love. Sacrificing your life for your enemies? That's why it's not a stretch to call this kind of love otherworldly, and that's point number four. This is an unearthly kind of love, unearthly in its nature, in its essence. Later, the same author John would write this in 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now, you see that on a page in your Bible or on your screen, on your tablet or whatever, and it doesn't jump out at you perhaps, but, but in the original, this is an exclamation. Like John can't contain himself as he thinks about the kind of love that would take treasonous rebels and turn them into members of the royal family of God. And he's like, what otherworldly foreign kind of love is this? In fact, in the original, that phrase, what kind of love could be translated extraterrestrial? <laughs> what otherworldly extraterrestrial kind of love is this? I'm telling you, I know you have family members who love I hope you have some family members who love you or some close friends who, who care deeply for you. But I'm telling you this, no one on earth has ever loved you like God loves you. No one has. He loves you with an intensity and an intentionality that no husband or wife, no son or daughter, no parent, no close friend could ever express. The best earthly love, as good as that gets, falls short of God's love. And that brings me to my next point. His love is ultimately satisfying in its experience. I'm convinced without a doubt that there is an experiential component to the love of God. What I mean by that is that God wants us to not just know the fact of His love in our head, but to feel it, to feel love, to sense His love for us. I mean, it's one thing to know in your head, okay, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Got it. You know, we check the box, right? Does God love you, yes or no? Yes, I get it. But that's not what this is talking about. It's another thing to have the, the soul-satisfying experience of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good different. I'm telling you, it's different than just head knowledge. When Paul told the Ephesians that he was praying that they would know the love of Christ, he wasn't talking about knowing facts. He used a word that pictured personal, first-hand, experiential knowledge of something. So let me give you an example. I know my wife's cherry dump cake. I know it. Not because I could pick it out of a lineup. Not because I've seen her make it. Not because I've studied the ingredients that she puts into it. 
seen pictures of it. Not because somebody recommended, recommended it to me. I know my wife's cherry dunk cake because I've tasted it. And it is so good. I mean, I would contend you have not really lived, actually, until you've had some of my wife's cherry dump cake. Now, it's not good for you. It's got a chunk of butter in it like this. It'll kill you, basically, but it is awesome. <laughs> I mean, it is wonderful. Do not end, you know, come to the end of your life and not have tasted my wife's cherry dump cake, which is a horrible name for it because it sounds like you just grab everything on the, on the counter and throw it all in there and dump it in, right? But it's, you know, elegant cherry cake or something like that. I know it because I've tasted it. But that's even not really the best illustration of what I'm talking about. Let me, let me go further. I know my wife. I know my wife in a way I don't know any other woman. <laughs> I know my wife because I've had the Shirley experience in my life. Up close, personal, life on life, firsthand, I know what that look means. I know what it means. I know what that laugh reveals. I know what makes her happy. I know what makes her sad. I know what makes her flustered. I know what makes her flustered. I know what grieves her heart. I know what makes her surprised, excited, hopeful. I know when she's about to cry. I know when she has cried. I know what upsets her. I know what gives her great joy. We've shared 35 years of knowing one another together, highs and lows, joys and disappointments, raising three children, 31 years of, of marriage. I know my wife. Not just up in my head, I've experienced her. My knowledge comes from firsthand experience. And what I'm saying to you is God wants us to know his love like that. Like, I know that I know that I know in my heart that God loves me because I've tasted of it. I've experienced it firsthand for myself. Listen to these verses. Taste and see that the Lord is good. No one can taste for you. You have to taste yourself, right? I'm talking about my wife's cherry dump cake. It's like, you've got to taste it for yourself. You've got to taste God's love for yourself. Paul wrote, God's love has been poured into our hearts. Like we're this empty pitcher, he's poured it into our hearts, filling us up through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Listen to me. This experience of tasting the love of God is the most liberating, freeing experience you can have in your life. I'm convinced of it. I've experienced it myself. Once you've truly sensed and tasted God's love for yourself, then things that you've always struggled with your whole life begin to fade away, begin to dissolve. Things like always feeling that need that you have to prove yourself to other people, prove that you belong. Always feeling like you have to pretend that you're somebody else so you can keep your flaws and faults hidden and concealed. Always feeling the pressure to perform, perform, perform so that others will keep liking you and keep approving of you love you. Those compulsions, when you taste the love of God, just start to dissolve and fade away, and you become free. I'm talking free. And you, you look back on your life, and you say, oh, how exhausting that was. All that, you know, keep, trying to keep up my, keep my image polished for everybody, and, and performing all the time, and having to prove myself all the time, and pretending, pretending, pretending. It was exhausting. No wonder I'm worn out. 
Thank God for the love of Jesus Christ that sets me free from those things. Because now what people think about me doesn't matter as much because the greatest being in the universe has my name inscribed on the palm of his hands. He loves me. He died for me. He took me out of the pit and set my feet on a solid rock. He transformed me from one of his enemies, from a rebel, into a member of his royal family. I'm telling you what, that'll set you free. It'll fill you up, too. Says he pours his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's like we're an empty pitcher and God's love fills us up to the brim to where it actually spills over and overflows onto other people. And that's my next point. God's love is uncontainable in its expression. It's got to spill over. It's got to leak out. John wrote this in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. You see the picture? I'm being loved by God. I'm sensing, experiencing, feeling that. And then I express that love to others. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who not, does not love does not know God because God is love. And then one of our theme verses around here, 1 John four nineteen: we love because he first loved us. And that's not some syllogism. That's not just some logical statement. We love logically because God loved us. No, this is we love because we've been enabled and empowered to love because God loves us. You see, love begets love. When God's love takes up residence in our hearts, it gives birth to what? Love for others. There's a, there's a rest that comes to the heart of those who have received God's love and experienced it. But don't misunderstand me. When I, when I say that personally tasting God's love leads to rest, I do not mean that once you've experienced it, you spend the remainder of your days laying around on the couch resting. That's not what I mean. <laughs> Rather, I mean that you finally cease your restless clawing and grasping at other people, trying to get them to fill you up because you're already filled up by God. Does that make sense? And in fact, what inevitably happens is that this restfulness of soul fuels you to reach out now to other people, not to take from them, but to give to them. That's the wonderful effect of tasting and experiencing firsthand the love of God. And I hope you've experienced that. We love because He first loved us. Loved people love people. There's something to write down. Loved people love people. Loved people love people. In fact, that's one way we can know that God's love has truly been planted in our hearts. We will find in there an increasing desire to love other people. That's the evidence, that's the proof that we've received the love of God. You'll find yourself loving people that you didn't used to love. Our church is populated with a lot of folks who find themselves, they surprise themselves sometimes. Pastor Steve, I, I find that I actually care for and love people that I used to hate or groups of people that I used to hate. What's with that? <laughs> I said, well, it's that foreign, otherworldly, extraterrestrial kind of love that God has for you that now is spilling out of you onto others. It's God's kind of love. Don't fight it. <laughs> it's a good thing. 
coming out of your heart. Love by its very nature cannot be contained. It's expressive. Well, God's love is like an ocean. And here we are peering around in the shallows. And we know there's deep water out there where there's a lot more. And I would encourage you, never be content with your current vision of the love of God. There's more there. We've barely, barely begun to see it. Let me, let me finish our, our exploration here with one final aspect of this love, this unlimited, unfathomable, unimaginable, unearthly, ultimately satisfying, uncontainable kind of love, and it's this. God's love is unstoppable. It is unstoppable in its determination. It is relentless in its pursuit. Years ago, I heard Chuck Swindoll tell a true story that grabbed my heart, and I've shared it here before, but it so pointedly illustrates this particular point that I'm going to tell it again. So if you've heard it before, just smile and nod like it's the first time, okay? It took place over in the Middle East a few years ago where a dad was living with his 10-year-old son. One day, as happens a lot over there, a, a bomb exploded, and and shook the ground, and buildings came crumbling to the ground. And when this dad heard about it, his heart just kind of leaped up into his throat because he realized his son, his 10-year-old boy, and his friend were out playing in a field near where the blast had occurred. And as a parent would do, as you would probably do, he immediately dropped everything he was doing and took off running towards the wreckage. And when he got there, his heart just sank as he, he saw that debris was scattered everywhere and the boys were nowhere to be found. How could anybody survive tons of falling steel and concrete? His heart was pounding. He started diving into the rubble and pulling away chunks of concrete, desperately attempting to find his son, hoping that he somehow survived this. The dad worked all day, all day, and then on even into the darkness, digging away at the mountain of rubble. There's bystanders there. He asked them if they could uh, get a flashlight and bring it and train its light on the, on the rubble so that he could continue work into the night, and he actually struggled all through the night trying to find his boy, but to no avail. Morning light found him still toiling away, exhausted now, desperate to save his son. All through that second day, the dad kept on weeping and praying and working and weeping and praying and working. Can you imagine? My son. His hands were now bloodied, his back ached, but he would not stop. People who were, who were walking by kind of gazed at him with that look of pity, knowing that his search was going to be fruitless. Some people offered him water and food and he only stopped for a minute or two to replenish himself and then returned to his task. On through that second night, the heartbroken dad continued clawing away at the pile, hoping for some sign, some movement, some noise, something that would let him know his boy was still alive. And then on the third morning, the sun began to creep over the hills. This dad, who is now thoroughly spent, heard a faint noise rising from, from the dust. You can imagine his heart leaped. <laughs> his adrenaline starts pumping. His hands started working faster and faster, pulling away at the rubble, casting aside the heavy chunks. He starts yelling into the pile, Son, are you there? Son, are you in there? And finally he heard a faint cry, Daddy, Daddy, we're in here, Daddy. 
strength surged through his body and he attacked the task with new vigor. His tired, aching muscles feverishly pulled away the wreckage to finally reveal a small opening and then a hand coming out. Son, it's me. I'm here. I'll get you out. Just hold on a few more minutes. I'll have you out of there. And in a matter of minutes, he was able to free his son and his friend. And, of course, covered in dust and hadn't eaten in days, just exhausted. And he pulled them to safety. And you can imagine there was a crowd that had gathered around. And they just broke into this cheer and applause. And strangers were hugging each other. And tears were flowing. And the father hugged his son. And it was one of those moments. And then his son turned to his friend who had just been rescued and said, I told you told you my dad was coming for us. I know my dad. You didn't believe me, did you? But I told you he would do whatever it takes to find us. Whatever other concept you have in your mind about God and what he is like, have that concept. Dogged determination chasing us down. Relentlessly pursuing us until we are fully and completely rescued. Just know that God loves you like that. Our Father loves His kids, and nothing, nothing can separate them from His love. For I am sure, Paul wrote, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. I started out with some corny country songs. How about if we end with a better one? One of my favorites all time. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. God loves you like Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me and think about these words? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting If today is the day that you would like to receive God's wonderful gift of His Son, Jesus, through whom He offers forgiveness of all of your sins, past, present, and future, through whom He gives eternal life to all who believe, if today is the day you'd like to receive that gift, would you please raise your hand right now? Because I'd like to guide you in a prayer. Thank you. Thank you. Others, thank you. Yes, I see that. Over here on my left, yep. Those of you who raised your hands, would you take this next moment and just talk to God? He's listening, you know. You could say something like this to him. Dear God, 
thank you for the message, the good news of John 3.16. Just thank him for it. Say, God, thank you for helping me understand this gift that cost you so much to give me. Today, I'm receiving that gift by faith in Jesus Christ. Tell him this, God, I, I know I fall short. I know I'm a sinner. I know I am ungodly. But I believe that Jesus came, lived, and died on a cross to pay for my sins, all of them. Thank you that you raised him from the dead. He's alive forevermore. Today I'm getting in that wheelbarrow that we talked about last week. I'm believing into Jesus. Unite me with him. I receive your gift of everlasting life. And then just thank him for hearing your prayers. Thank you, Lord. Many of you are Christians. Some of you feel the love of God, but others of you, there's something keeping you from feeling it. There's something blocking it. There's something in the way. You know in your head that it's true, but you don't feel it much. Oh, how I long and pray for you to taste the love of God. And I don't know what it is that's, that's blocking, that's capping that off. Is it guilt? Is it shame? Is it sin? Is it something that happened to you? Is it someone who was supposed to represent God to you, abused you, or hurt you? All I can say to you is this. There's nothing in this world better than experiencing the love of God. And if there is something blocking you from feeling that love today, I, I so would urge you to come and pray with one of our prayer partners over here to my left and also over here to my right, just come and say, I, I don't feel it, but I want to, and, and let them pray over you and expose and, and, and reveal to you through the Holy Spirit what it is that's in the way. Father God, I, I, I thank you for the good news of John 3.16. I pray for my friends here today that each and every one of them would know that they know that they know in their deepest depths of their heart that you love them. You sacrificed yourself that they might have forgiveness and everlasting life. Thank you for these who are praying today to receive that gift through Jesus. And may my Christian friends who need to, who, who you're talking to, come and be prayed with, Lord, so they might experience it in a fresh new way and be filled up to the brim so they can overflow and love others. Receive our praise and worship now. You are worthy of it. We love you and we thank you for your goodness, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.